Radio Mano Papachango. Hey, all the other uh, tangentially speaking listeners, um, just wanted to say, you know, if you're if you're ever looking for a way out, or at least uh, for a long break, it's not as hard as it might seem. I mean, at, le- at least if you don't have anything tying you down, like a family or a, like a career or anything, um, you know, what I've been doing is I work in Canada for maybe four or five months out of the year I work in like wilderness lodges remote wilderness lodges you can work as like a cook or a housekeeper or whatever do that for maybe four or five months and then they pay for your room and board you save your money and then you take it somewhere that money goes like ten times further like a place in Southeast Asia or South America uh, for example I've, I'm now in um month two of living in Colombia. I'd spent the prior four months to that living in uh, close to Alaska working on a, on a lodge on a big boat in the kitchen and um, yeah it's uh, it's sustainable. It's a way that I don't have to work very much and I don't have to you know uh, stick with one career for a long time. I can just kind of work for a season, save money, go traveling and then go work for another few months and wash rinse and repeat um, so if you're ever looking for anything any kind of way out or you feel stuck or you don't know how to afford to travel and work and live and everything and it, it seems like the only people who can travel are the ones who are super rich that's not true, you don't need to be rich to travel, you just have to you know, you gotta you gotta find the, the, the right ways to do it and it's definitely possible if I can do it you can do it um, and if you want any uh, you know any advice or any kind of places to look for jobs or job references or you know if you want me to put in a good word for you if you're working in Canada somewhere uh, hit me up um, I'm at uh, Arley boy on Instagram a r l e y b o i on Instagram hit me up and uh, I'll help you find a way to get uh, get out of your rut and go travel for a little while. Okay, all the best. Arlie boy. Thank you, Arlie boy. That's awesome. Um, so, you got that. You can reverse and listen to that. Uh, get Arlie boy B-O-I on Instagram, I believe. So, uh, yeah, get a job reference from Arlie boy and get the fuck out of your rut, everybody. Welcome to 2023. This is a great episode. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. This is one of these conversations where, you know, at the end of it, both of us were like, dude, we should hang out. Like, what a, what a nice guy. Randall Nickerson. The movie's called Aerial Phenomenon, a documentary he made about a situation that happened in Southern Africa. One day, teachers are having a, a teacher's meeting. All the kids in this elementary school are out running around on the playground playing soccer and 
hanging on the monkey bars and screaming and chasing each other around as little kids do. And some kind of spacecraft landed. And all the kids were like, what the fuck is that? They probably didn't say fuck being little kids, being well-mannered little kids. But they all saw it. They all saw a figure get out or appear and move around. And a lot of the kids felt that they were receiving some sort of a message from this figure. And uh, it became a news story. They reported it. They told that they ran in and told the teachers. Some of the adults came out and saw what was happening. It was a news story. It was reported by local media. It was picked up by the BBC. Um, it was a big fucking deal. And one of the most interesting things about it was that a guy named John Mack, who was a professor of psychology at Harvard, who was interested in the UFO phenomenon, uh, flew down there and interviewed the kids and applied scientific principles to the interviews, looking for inconsistencies. Um, the kids drew what they saw. He interviewed the kids separately, obviously. And interestingly, and, and maybe somewhat counterintuitively, the inconsistencies make the story that much more believable, right? Because if everybody's telling exactly the same story, then you've got an indication that this is something that's been planned out and, and, you know, worked out ahead of time. But the fact is that we all experience life slightly differently. Even if we're all looking at the same thing, you know, witnesses to a traffic accident will describe what happened differently depending on what they notice, what they didn't notice, where they're standing, uh, you know, if their view was blocked by a tree or somebody, a truck went in front of them or whatever, everybody's experiencing things slightly differently. So when you're looking at a situation like this, especially with little kids, the inconsistencies make it much more believable because it's much more realistic that people are going to report things that way. Anyway. Uh, it's it's an amazing documentary, aerial phenomenon. It's on iTunes. I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's various places. Uh, just Google it and and buy it and watch it and tell me your mind is not fucking blown. Randall spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money, uh, a lot of which was borrowed money. To make this film because he felt that the story really needed to be told. And the way he did it, so awesome. This happened in 90, I've got it in my notes somewhere, 94, 6, somewhere in there. Um, he went and found the kids from the school who are now in their 20s and 
and interviewed them and talked about how this experience had changed their lives. If it had changed their lives, a lot of people, they just didn't tell anyone because they're Christian or they didn't want to face potential ridicule or whatever. There's shame around have any experience like this. And, uh, man, there's one interview where he's speaking with this woman and, and she's telling about the story. And, and at one point she says, you know, I don't, I don't even think I've told my husband about this. <laughs> it's like, what? You never told your husband about the time in school when a UFO landed in the playground and, every, uh, you know, like really? Holy shit. Yeah, incredible story. So anyway, that's today's episode. Randall Nickerson, the aerial phenomenon, A-R-I-E-L, because that was the name of the school. I want to remind you that uh, if you subscribe to my Substack, you get all kinds of booty, New Year booty. Uh, for example, I will post the video of this conversation uh, on Substack for or a link to it for um, paying subscribers and you can be a paying subscriber. Yes, you too can be a paying subscriber. Just throw five bucks a month in for the, into the tip jar there and uh, you get all the booty and even free subscribers get booty. You get articles I'm writing, uh, you get uh, just pretty much everything I do goes up on Substack. And a lot of it's for everybody. And some of it's just for the inner circle elite, the Navy SEALs of tangentially speaking, the Army Rangers. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's all kinds of stuff going on there. I'm working on new um, there's, uh, I should say there's a, uh, open thread every month for paying subscribers. And I just posted it last night, the one for January. And in this month I said, so what do you want more of? What do you like? What are you sick of? What do you want me to, to do more? And I'm getting some really great feedback on that. Um, uh, some interesting ideas. Um, so yeah, trying to keep this, uh, a collaborative endeavor. It's definitely a community thing. And speaking of community, so here's the deal. As you probably know, I'm in Crestone, Colorado. We bought some land here and the plan is to build what I refer to as a lifeboat, um, meaning semi-autonomous, uh, community-based, take-care-of-each-other kind of situation. Not like a commune, not where, you know, everybody pools their money and then we all argue and it, you know, and we end up hating each other. Not that kind of thing. Uh, more of, uh, you know, come to Crestone if you feel it. Get your own place, but we share tools and... You know, somebody's got chickens and they give everybody eggs and somebody else is a good carpenter and they help out with the carpentry and someone else might have a little more money than other people. So they help out financially and whatever, you know, sort of uh, uh, collaborative, but not uh, communal in the sense of 1960s 
idealistic, you know, ending in collapse and acrimony situation. So our friends Oliver and Cheryl have already bought land here and they're sort of planning their getaway from L.A., a um, bunch of other friends have come and, and looked and, and are thinking about it. I think they're sort of waiting for us to make a move. Well, we're making a fucking move. I mean, we've already bought the land, as I said. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, um, a little house came on the market. And, uh, you know, we've been looking at, at houses that are for sale, not with really any intention of buying them, just to sort of see things and get building ideas because some houses are straw bell and some are um, air crete and, and all because there's no building code in Crestone. People have um, used lots of sort of innovative alternative building styles. And so we've been going and, you know, if there's an open house or something, go look at a place and, and see how they built it and see how it feels and, you know, just gathering ideas, doing research. Anyway, this place came on, Zillow and we're like, yeah, let's go check it out. It's, it's small. It's like 850 square feet. Um, and we went and looked at it and, uh, it's a weird place, um, built on a really beautiful sort of up on the hill overlooking the San Luis Valley, beautiful spot. And, um, the guy who built it is kind of eccentric and he did a lot of things that don't make sense, uh, particularly around the house. Um, and the layout of the house itself is kind of, um, strange, but anyway, we went and looked at it and they're like, Oh, that's wow. What a great view. And, nah, nah, nah. and then at the same time, we've been looking at places for rent and, um, you know, we figure it's going to be two years optimistically before we design and, you know, build and figure out what we're doing with the, the lifeboat on, on our five acre lot that we bought. And so we're looking at rent and rent here is, you know, 1500 to 2000 a month for a two bedroom you know, place that we'd be relatively comfortable in while we do that other thing. So you're looking at 48, if you take 2000 a month times 48 or times uh, 24 months, which is two years, that's $48,000 that you're paying somebody and then it's gone. And so we kind of looked at this place and we're like, well, what if we just bought this place and paid ourselves, you know, the rent instead of someone else? And, you know, then we could sell this place or rent it or whatever um, to help finance the other one. So anyway, it's kind of like a stepping stone. So we're we're buying it. So we basically are buying this house, uh, small house. Not really a tiny house, but I think 850 square feet is considered a small house um, as, a, as a staging ground for the lifeboat. So that's there's an update for you on the Crestone project. I believe Anya has set up a YouTube uh, page and also an Instagram account called the Crestone Conglomerate. Uh, if you subscribe to those, 
you will see the project unfolding. Like I think I might even do, I, I watch so much cabin porn. I watch all these videos about guys who are, you know, building a shed or building a cabin and, you know, like, and, and it sort of takes you through each step. There's a guy named Bush Radical on YouTube. Who's awesome. I'm a big fan of his. Um, so I might do those kind of videos, like a time lapse of, you know, here I'm going to build a, you know, a guest house, a cabin, or, you know, I'm going to, you know, redesign the kitchen or whatever. Um, I don't really know the appeal of watching me do that shit other than like, Jesus, I could do better than him. You know, like it might be that kind of inspiration, sort of a negative inspiration. Watch me fuck up and you'll feel better about yourself. I think that's the tagline. Anyway, so um, the Crestone Conglomerate, which is named after the rock here. There's a special rock that only exists here. It's a conglomerate. So it's made of different rocks and it's really beautiful. So it's like a rounded boulder kind of thing that's got all kinds of different colored rocks embedded in it. That's a conglomerate. Uh, that's the geological term for that kind of rock. And there's a particular kind here in Crestone that only exists here. And so we named it that because the idea we want to build this community of, you know, friends we know and friends we haven't yet met who all bring their own special color and hardness and, you know, composition, whatever to the to the conglomerate rock. So you see where we're going with that. All right. That is the update. Uh, what else can I tell you? If you're doing dry January, or even if you're not, you might want to check out athletic brewing. This is not a advertisement. This is not a sponsorship. I think they sent me three six packs or something, but basically I approached them and said, I love your fucking beer. It's awesome. It tastes like a really good craft beer, but it's non-alcoholic. So I've been drinking it regularly and, uh, and I thought you might like to, and I said, why don't you guys give me a discount code and I'll mention it on the podcast. And they did. So the discount code is Chris Ryan 20 and you get 20% off your first order. But I think right now they're running some special that's better than that. I, I think like, I don't know, they, they run all their own specials. So if you see a better deal, just take the better deal. Um, but in any case, if you like beer, but you're feeling like you don't necessarily need the alcohol, you just like it because it fucking tastes good and you take a drink and you go, ah, I find it really hard to drink cold beer and not go <sighs> after. I, I don't know why. It just seems like the thing to do. So if, uh, if you're like that, check out Athletic Brewing. I really like the Run Wild IPA. Fuck, it's so good. What else? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot and, and something I, I heard Rick Beato say the other day was really interesting. He, he did a little video called, uh, how auto tune has ruined music or something like that. Rick Beato has been on the podcast several times. Uh, check him out on YouTube. He's, he's a YouTube monster. 
um, everything music, Rick Beato. Anyway, he said, um, he made the point that Cher, I think, the first song he heard with autotune was some song by Cher 20 years ago or whenever it was. And at the time he heard it, it just sounded weird and robotic and like, what the fuck is that? And and now it's everywhere in popular music. Like all the popular music is auto-tuned. And I guess what that means, I'm not obviously not a musical expert, but I guess what that means is that it takes the humanity out of singing by perfecting it. Now, I, I did air quotes with my fingers when I said when I said perfecting. You probably didn't see that, but I did. Trust me, I'm doing it right now. Air quotes. Because perfection in art is imperfection, right? Perfection in art is inferior, at least in my opinion and clearly in Rick's opinion. Someone said, I forget who it was, but someone made the point that it is the imperfection enacts beauty, that that potentiates beauty, right? If you see someone who is absolutely symmetrical and their face is perfect, yeah, they're attractive, but they're not beautiful until there's a scar, until there's a, an asymmetry until there's something that's a little off because that's what sets off the rest. That's what makes the rest of it so beautiful because you see this imperfection, right? And I think that we're in this strange moment where Machines have been studying us for decades now. They've been learning. They've been watching how we move, how we talk, how we write, what websites we look at, what things we buy. I mean, why do you think Gmail is free? Why is Google paying millions and millions of dollars for these giant server farms where all this email is going and all this search function is taking place for free. Why would they do that for free? Because they love us. Because they just want to give us the gifts. No, 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 no. Someone said, I think it was Jared Lanier who said, you know, if the service is free, if the app is free, then you're the product. It's all about what they get out of you and what they're getting out of us is studying how we think, how we exist, how we purchase, how where our attention goes, so that they can use that information to sell us shit. That's the immediate goal. That's the thing they're telling us. But I think it's deeper than that. I think that's, it's a bait and switch. They tell us that's what they're doing, and they do. They make money, obviously, on targeted advertising. But I think the real project... And I don't mean to sound conspiratorial here, but I think the real project is to replace us. And it's, I mean, that's not as crazy as it sounds. People who, you know, work in grocery stores checking you out, well, they're disappearing because the self-checkout is where it's at, right? 
So what did they do? They came in, they watched how the checkout people work. They watch how they behave. They watch how they, you know, first they get the barcode, they scan that and then they've got, okay, we've got people do that themselves and we'll just, we'll make the lines longer here by firing half the people and then that'll push people over into the self-checkout and that's more efficient. It's much easier to have a machine do it. ATM machines. I remember when there were no ATM machines, you wanted money, you went to the bank, you stood in line, you talked to somebody. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Can I have a hundred dollars? Yeah. You want that in twenties? You go through all that shit to get some money. Now you go up to a machine, beep, 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 boom, boom, boom. You get your money. Well, okay. Does that make life more convenient? I guess so. But that bank teller got fired. Uh, auto manufacturing, any kind of manufacturing. It's mostly robots doing it now. So we are being replaced. Telemedicine. Okay, there's a doctor somewhere, supposedly, who's doing it. You call any company, you get, you know, press one for this, press two for that. It's all fucking automated. Everything's automated. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is that what Rick Beato said was that auto-tune and computerized beats prepare us for AI-created music. So it's an intermediary stage between human art and artificially intelligent created art, if we can still call it art. That it's getting us, it's softening us up, it's getting us used to hearing this perfect, again, I'm doing air quotes, rhythm, this perfect, this computerized beat. Years ago, I was in Goa in India, uh, and Goa is like a big rave scene. Um, and I have, I mean, I don't know shit about rave music or, or I don't even know if it's called rave music, but that, that whole, like, you know, where everyone takes ecstasy and boom, 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 boom. Um, that's never been my scene. I, you know, that happened after I was already a grown up. And, uh, but I remember lying in my little cabin on the beach and he, listening to these, these parties that were going on. And it's the sound, the, the music, I don't even want to call it music because it sounds industrial. It's, it's mass produced. It's coming off a fucking assembly line. It's, there's no humanity. I mean, I know I sound like an old fogey here, but a DJ, a DJ isn't a musician. Right? Or am I missing something? I know people are going to say, yeah, you're missing something, boomer. But, but like music is imperfect. The human heartbeat is imperfect. Sometimes it goes faster. Sometimes it goes slower. Sometimes it misses a beat. That's the organic nature of it. Things that have no organicity, if that's a word, that are not organic, I don't. I don't want to call them art. I don't want to call them music. I don't want to call fucking a fleshlight sex making love. I, I, I mean, where's the line here? And so Rick Beato's point is that 
the step from, you know, the intermediate intermediary step from fucking Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and the Beatles toward whatever's coming next is share, you know, her voice being auto tuned and this music with computerized beats and, you know, hip hop, pretty much everything is a computerized beat now, right? A drum machine. That's the intermediary stage. And the next stage is there's no fucking people involved at all anymore. Except on the consuming end. And our fucking only function appears to be consumption. And again, you know, that's the trend. That's how we've been led toward that for decades now. And all this stuff made me think about breasts. <laughs> Lots of things make me think about breasts, but it's like when boob jobs started, the idea was to make breasts. Now, now, obviously there's reconstructive, you know, there's, there's, you know, someone who's had breast surgery and so on like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the purely aesthetic, you know, Hollywood, LA kind of, you know, I want my tits bigger. Okay. So the, the first 20 years or so of that, the, the goal was to make a woman's breasts look bigger, but natural. And at some point, it seems to have changed, at least for many women, where the point now is not to look natural. The point is, of course, these are implants. Of These don't look like any normal breasts that have ever existed in, in the world. These are like volleyballs. These are totally um, spherical. And so the... The transition has been from natural to natural seeming, but sort of tweaked to now no longer even pretending to be natural. And I, I feel like that's where things are going. That's the transition that Rick Beato was pointing to with music. That's where we're going with all kinds of things. I mean, I, I see in, in, in uh, Instagram now, there's a thing where people are posting like the most beautiful scenery you've seen in the last year. And the voice is this computerized voice saying, show the most beautiful scenery you saw in 2022. It's not a voice that's pretending to be a human voice anymore. It's the point is it's a computer generated voice. Show the best view you saw in 2022. I will go first. Fuck. I don't know what that means. Maybe it has something to do with aliens. All right. I'm going to play you out or play you in or play you over <laughs> the bridge song. Is the song I've been thinking about for a long time. And it's very relevant to this. The song is called. Maybe Angels. It's by Sheryl Crow. You may have heard it. Sheryl Crow was very big in the 90s, I guess. This is from her first album, which came out in 1996. Now, here's the mind fuck. On this album, 
there's this song, Maybe Angels. The song is about aliens, space aliens. There's another song on the album called Heaven's Gate. Now, there was a cult in the 90s called Heaven's Gate. You may have heard of them because they were quite strange. They lived in a house near San Diego. They all wore Nike shoes. And they thought that a spacecraft was hiding in the tail of the Hale-Bopp comet that was then passing close to Earth's orbit. And you could see it at night. I remember going up on uh, Tibidabo in Barcelona and, and looking at this comet. And so they thought that there was a an alien spacecraft hiding in the tail of that comet. It was coming close to Earth, close enough to see with a naked eye. And they were all going to ascend to that spacecraft and go off and, and, you know, live forever in outer space. So they all dressed up in their weird little outfits and their Nike shoes, and they committed mass suicide. And they're like, the leader was this something apple white. I forget his first name. Uh, very weird, weird looking dude. Um, who I think, I think he like castrated himself or something. Anyway, that happened in March of 1997, the Heaven's Gate cult suicide, March of 1997. This album came out in 1996 with a song called Heaven's Gate and another song, which I'm about to play you, that is clearly about going off with aliens. I don't know how to explain that. I tried to contact Cheryl Crow at one point um, through her publishing company or something. Uh, I, I used to have a blog on psychology today. I think I wrote about this and was like, Hey, if anyone knows Cheryl Crow, like put us in touch, please. I'd love to ask her what the hell's going on. Anyway, here's the, um, I'll read you the lyrics to the song. Uh, six lane highway running up to my back door, but it won't take me where I want to be. I took the I-95 down to Pensacola. All I found was a bunch of holy rollers. They don't know nothing about saving me. Okay? So she wants to be saved. She wants to go somewhere. I swear, this is the chorus. I swear they're out there. I swear. Maybe angels. Maybe angels. Down here, I feel like a citizen of nowhere. My bag's all packed in case they ever come for me. Got a hundred stories and tabloid lies. Got witnesses to what the government denies. So I'm headed down to Roswell to wait and see. Oh, what a mystery. Oh, I believe. I believe I could leave. My sister, she says she knows Elvis. She knows Jesus, John Lennon, and Cobain personally. Oh, but I'm too wise to believe my eyes. Because all I've seen just terrifies me. And I believe they're coming back for me. Maybe angels. Okay, wrap your head around that. This is Cheryl Crow from her first album called Cheryl Crow. The song is called Maybe Angels. The conversation is with Randall Nickerson. And the film is called Aerial Phenomenon. Thanks for listening. I hope things are going well for you out there and that you find your heaven here on earth. 
I'm here with Randall Nickerson. Uh, thank you, man. Thank you for making the time. And mostly thank you for making that film. Holy shit. What a great movie. What an amazing. Uh-huh. I mean, when when you set out to tell that story, you know what it reminded me of? And maybe it's the South African connection, but it reminded me of Searching for Sugar Man. Do you know that mm-hmm. documentary? Yes. Oh, it's, yeah. Incredible duck. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And. I think I mean, a lot of people haven't even seen that. And it won an Oscar, you know. But, yeah, anyone, you know, go go see Aerial Phenomenon first and then watch Searching for Sugarman. But it reminded me of that because, you know, I, I think when you enter into a, a project like that where you've come across this incredible story, just incredible story that very few people have heard of, and you feel like I want to bring this to the world's attention, which is a natural inclination for a creative guy like you. But the, there's also this incredible uh, burden of not wanting to fuck it up, right? Because yeah. it's the material is so good that if you made a bad movie about it, that would really suck. Yeah, that's very true. Uh you know, I started in 2007 in September and was at the school in 2008. And it was c- kind of slowly built. Like I knew, you know, I just with the John Mack material. And then, you know, that was really fascinating to me because of who he was, how genuine these kids were. And then I, you know, took on the process. Once I got to the school, I'm like, oh, my God this is a big story. There were three teachers there who all said, yeah, it happened. I uh, started running around uh, interviewing the children uh, that were now adults. And and then I found out the BBC was the uh, uh, reporter, producer, cameraman was the first person to uh, be at the school. First interviews. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So it kind of built, you know, and, and, and the more, archival data that i received um wow like there were so many wow moments that happened during this project like i can't even believe it you know and then and then nobody would nobody wanted to at that time they weren't really interested in this subject you know Mm. and it wasn't until around 2013 that i could actually start getting people interested you know i was i always knew it like dude this is an incredible story but it took a lot of convincing with my editor, with my first uh, assistant producer. And then they came on and that was great because I so needed the help. You know, it was a hard row. You mentioned uh, Tim Leach, the BBC journalist, um, you know, who I love how things like that happen, right? Where you go into a project, not even knowing this guy exists. And then he appears and he becomes a pillar of the film and such a great presence, you know, because he was this guy who had seen it all. He'd been in war zones and seen people lined up and shot against the wall. And, you know, just, he was shot. Oh, he was shot. Yeah. Yeah. He lost his friend. He lost so many friends and people that he worked with over the years. Cause that's what happens. And, you know, war, war photography, war videography is really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but his presence is so interesting because, you know, he comes into it, this sort of jaded, seen it all dude. 
Mm-hmm. And then he sees this and he interviews these kids and he's like, holy fuck, this, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. And just yeah. to see that transition in him and that's such a great sort of perspective for you as the filmmaker, I think, to to take advantage of that the way you did was wonderful. Yeah, he was, um, I mean, like a lot of people, including myself, like scarred characters, you know, Um but so interesting, you know, so the way they see the world, what they've seen, like you're saying, like, oh, my God, like the same things that man set uh, saw in his lifetime, as well as many other people uh, is incredible. But, yeah, he added a great he kind of added a comic humor narration step back, like, OK, wait a second, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was Tim, you know, he's a good man. Unfortunately, he's not here, you know. Yeah. I really wish you could have seen this film. Yeah. There's several people that are not here that I wish my brother, my 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 uh cousin Colin, your uncle Byron. Here my uncle Byron who started my uncle Byron. So, my I just random stuff. Uh so my great 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 grandfather, he uh Cooley Dickinson, he uh left his estate to uh not to his family. He left it to the town of Northampton to build a hospital. And it is still there. It's called Cooley Dickinson Hospital. It's a lot bigger than it used to be. But he started that. And my uncle, I had just gotten back from Africa the first time. He was dying of cancer, unfortunately. Um, and he, uh, he had seen a few things in his lifetime and was very interested in what I was working on. And he left his estate to me. You know, it was, I could have gone out and bought a Ferrari or something stupid, but I, he knew, he, he knew I, you know, it all went into the, he, he gave me the first money to really start uh, doing the film properly. Right. And, and he I knew what you him. were, he knew what you were doing. He did. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was, he did. No, he wouldn't have done that. Otherwise he wanted uh, me to complete the project and we discussed it before he died. Like what he, I mean, I felt like, wow. Why are he's like, yeah, I want you to finish this project. And I said, I told him like all the money's going to this project and that's what happened. Um, so my, and then my, you know, my mother and father, my family, my brother, uh, and then other donors and people online and, and other people in the field. I mean, it was, it's been an amazing process. Um, I owe a lot of money, but <laughs> I've been, I owe an awful lot of money and uh, people are hurting right now. So uh, everybody's knocking on my door, which is kind of, it's just the way it is. I'll figure it out. Hopefully it's going to do well online, but I owe a lot of thanks to so many people, you know, like yeah. that help people that let me stay at their house or, you know, in Africa or wherever I was, you know, people have been great. It's before I turned on the recording, you and I were talking about similarities between making a film and writing a book. And, you know, my last book, it, it occurred to me having one person's name on the cover of a book is ridiculous because yeah. no book is ever written by one person. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the case of my books, I'm basing my stuff on the work of a lot of other people. You know, I'm reading their research and, 
putting their stuff together and, you know, combining their ideas with others. And, you know, my, my partner's working her ass off to pay the rent while I'm sitting around, you know, fiddling with a book, her name should be on it and your editors. And, and I know it's the same way with films. And, you know, I heard you mention your uncle Byron, how he left you, uh, some money to, to sort of at the time you thought would cover the expense of the film, but of course it turned out to be <laughs> something very yeah. different. But you yeah. said, you said he'd seen some things and, and to me, that's kind of a connection with Tim Leach who, you know, we were framing Tim Leach as like this war hardened, jaded kind of seen it all dude. But on the other hand, people who have seen so much, I feel like they are, um, they're open in a way because they've seen unbelievable things before. They've mm. seen things that challenge the dominant paradigm of what reality is. And so when something else comes to them, it's like, oh, well, this is possible. I've seen some other weird shit. Um, what, what do you think? Like, you, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about personal stuff. I know you've, I listened to a bunch of interviews you had done uh, preparing for this, and you mentioned that you've had some experiences that have opened you up to possibilities that may be considered unconventional. It sounds like maybe your uncle had as well. That's correct. Are you interested? Are you? Can you talk about any of that, or do you want to keep that out of it? Um, you know, I kind of want to. Uh, I just want. Well, the problem is, is like, I, I have no problem talking about it on a private level. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to take away from Ariel at all. Are you afraid uh, I, that people will think that you have an agenda because of experiences you've had? Well, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's being considered an artist, right? You know, you know what I mean? I'm an activist on one hand and, but I also want to be, um, considered, for what I did. Do you know what I mean? For what not. And you're right. You stand on the shoulders of giants and you get so much help from the kids, the, you know, everybody was amazing that I worked with, uh, Liesl and Salma and, uh, Emily and Emma. I mean, Luke, Robert, I mean, these are almost less weird, but it's like a little family. When you spend 15 years with people, you get to know everybody, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some things that, uh, have motivated me in this direction for sure. Uh, I pay attention real close to my environment because it is not as advertised. <laughs> uh, that's just yeah. true. Yeah. And it's not like I'm gullible or, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I grew up as a mechanic's son. So I was working on cars, electronics, the piano forever still. And, uh, you know, I've gotten way more in depth in what I do. Um, but I'm very, I'm kind of a nuts and bolts kind of guy, you know? So when I do see something that's way out of the ordinary, uh, it catches my attention and then I study it because it shouldn't be there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, my story, yeah, I just, I don't know. At some point, I would love to do it, Chris. Um, just not, not the time, but I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe in the director's cut that you've been, uh, 
teasing a little bit. I, I heard you mention that might be coming out in six months or so. Well, I got to get the money to edit, you know, um, when I started this film, I figured, yeah, I'm going to do it. I can do it alone. Don't need anybody's help. <laughs> is this your first documentary? Um, this is my first long form, right. you know. You, you're um, a wildlife but, photographer, is that right? I do wildlife. I do. Um, I was working on a film before Ariel came onto my plate from the John Mack Institute, which I have to send some appreciation to for sure. Um, and, uh, I was doing a, a, a documentary on Bud Hopkins, uh, his he? life story. Do you know him? No. Um, Bud Hopkins wrote Missing Time, Intruders. Uh, he was an artist in Manhattan who, uh, also studied this subject and, oh. uh, he made some huge breakthroughs, huge breakthroughs as far as, people seeing these objects, right? And then why is their time all of a sudden is manipulated and they're missing? And mm. he kind of questioned, well, what's that about? Why do people not, you know, why do people see these things? And then all of a sudden they can't remember anything. Yeah. So anyway, it's just, anyway, that got me on to Ariel. Um, so yeah, I was doing shorter form, 16, 20 minute docs. Got a bunch of them, and uh, and uh, so yeah, this is my first full length. Full length is very different. I'm sure it's like writing a short story as opposed to a novel. It's yeah. uh, oh my god, it's so hard. You gotta <laughs> break it so long. You gotta break it down into pieces. I think. Yeah, wow. And I gotta say, Chris uh, Seward, my story editor, uh, man, like that's what he does for work. So, you know, I was okay at it, but he's a pro. Um, and, you know, no, knew how to break it down, you know, into manageable pieces and finally build this, uh, incredible piece of art, you know, but keep, you're right. It's a lot of people. Look at my credit. My credits are huge. Yeah. There's probably a thousand people in my credits, you know? Yeah. I gave I mean, everybody a credit. I keep I keep sort of flipping back and forth between appreciation for what you've created, just the film standing on its own terms, but also sort of amazement at the the process of creating it because it's it's really a story of incredible courage, right? Now we can start with John Mack risking his career and reputation to investigate something that is legitimately of incredible scientific importance. Mm -hmm. And anyone who is willing to, you know, take off their, their filters and look at things uh, as cleanly as possible has to say like, this is an amazing thing. Of course we should all be looking at this. Of course, every news organization in the world should be here. Um, and then the courage of these kids to say, hey, this is what I saw. And 20 years later to say, yeah, that's what I saw. And the kids, the the adults now who agreed to be interviewed, agreed to go on camera. I remember one of them said, like, I don't think I've even told my husband about this. Yeah. Like, 
Like it's not, it's a part of their lives that they've compartmentalized and, um, you know, sort of put away somewhere because it would be too disruptive to their families, you know, religious beliefs and all sorts of things. And they had the courage and you had the charm or you, I don't know what you did to convince them to, to feel safe enough to, to talk about this with you on camera. Um, just, I mean, really incredible process, you know, and then all the people who supported you and, and the, took a risk with financial stuff and your uncle. And there's just so much beyond a normal documentary, right? If you were just doing a documentary about nuclear fusion or something, you know, it's, it's a very different kind of endeavor. Very true. Yeah. I should have picked a, a local story, you know, not Africa. <laughs> Holy crap. Well, but Africa yeah. and your subjects are all over the world, right? You're filming yeah. in Canada and, and the U S and Africa and UK. You, you did. I think I heard you say you did 60, you had like 60 interviews. Is that right? Or was it 60 oh, God, I did. kids? Well, it was, you know, this is kind of the thing that, um, you find out a lot of things that don't end up in the story, but, uh, you know, they originally reported 60 kids, 62, you know, what that re refers to are, were 62 kids that did drawings. So uh -huh. there were two classes in the school that they, the, the, and I think smartly so they were the younger, kids and they didn't even include those kids in any of this conversation because they were so traumatized. And so, mm. you know, the actual number, I believe, cause I spoke to some of those younger kids that were in grade one, grade two. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of them and, you know, they never did any, they were, they were totally separated from the whole thing. So I, the, the numbers, uh, like, one of the teachers said is well over a hundred. Okay. So, and were there any adults that, that saw things? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So one of the first things I did was I was trying to eliminate the, what was this thing? You know what I mean? Like there were a lot of adult witnesses, hundreds and hundreds of adult witnesses on the 14th of September, which was two days before Ariel. And then there were, dozens on the Thursday, the day before Ariel that evening around seven thirty. Um so I went and interviewed all those. That's like a hundred interviews and it's very there there's only one in the movie. <laughs> but they're all very riveting and you gotta say, what did they see? You know, and I was looking at Space Warn and NASA and talking to uh, you know, the strategic you know, getting information from Strategic Air Command. That's what was it was termed at the time to see what was in space, what was coming down through satellites, what might've been seen. So there was a whole elimination process from the external world scenario, what was going on at the time. Um, so, you know, uh, and then I started interviewing pilots and then I found some testimony by a radar controller. Uh, so because you know, I don't, no matter what people say, when you, if you get a commercial pilot up there, uh, or a radar operator, those people know what they're doing and they know what they're seeing. I mean, they're, your right. lives are 
you, you put your lives in their hands. So, uh, back to the teachers, but so their, their testimony was really important to me to solidify like, yeah, okay. Externally I can, I've got evidence, which is not in the film either. Uh, which is why I wanted to do the director's cut, which will be more the evidentiary side. I wanted to do the human story. Right. You know, like this is what it's like for these people and this is what it costs them. Um, and so the teachers, yes. Um, I've had, uh, three of the teachers tell me privately that, that they had seen these things too. Because when the kids came running in, two teachers went outside to see what was going on, right? Immediately. Um, and the other teacher, something happened like a week later at the same location. She oh, was really? Brilliant. Yes. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I mean, the one guy who was said this wasn't going on, right? Said, didn't believe this was happening. I went and interviewed and he had changed his mind. He said, well, you know, initially he thought they were making it up, but over time he believed in them because of the consistency mm. over time. Um, but I mean, when you go into a story, you know, I've had my email, my phone number available for 15 years. I've not had one person, one of these kids or any of the witnesses say it didn't happen. Or I was going to ask I, you if anyone went the other way who no. said, no, I mean, know, it, yeah. If they have, they haven't spoken to me about it. In in fact, what I found was people didn't want to talk to me. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I actually met with several people who wouldn't go on camera, but they, again, I was like, well, why, why, why don't you want to talk about it? And it was because I don't want to think about it. And I don't want people to know that this happened to me because I don't want to complicate my life. Right. Cause that's the thing. It's a fear of you bring this stuff up, there's no upside, you know, there's no upside, you know, yeah. All, people look at you like, I don't know what's maybe something's wrong with that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, especially in a place where Christianity is yes. so strong and, you know, it, you get into a bit of a Galileo situation there where. True. I think that's what we're on the precipice of. Yeah. Do you really think it's, do. do you think it's, it's easier now. I mean, there's been oh, yeah. all this acceptance and in, in mainstream media in the last few years, at least in the U.S. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's are... much more open worldwide. The U.S. is, is actually the worst I've seen in the world. Mm. I've been around the world, and and the U.S. has been the most uh, stigmatized. They've stigmatized it the most in anywhere I've been. Mm. Um, yep. I mean, even England's better. Sorry. Mm. But I guess we're changing that sort of, but the, you know, I got to call out the media. Like this is a huge story. And why are we not seeing it? You know, it's a huge story worldwide. What, what do you think? Story, yeah. The whole thing. I, I, I mean, is uh, there was this thing that happened at O'Hare Airport? Um, maybe yeah, 10, 15, you know that? Punch hole. Um, yep. So many, there are hundreds and hundreds of people in the airport who saw this hovering craft uh, out yeah. over the runway, and then it went vertically straight up through the clouds and left a hole in the clouds, and yeah. hundreds of witnesses. It was on the front page of the newspaper, and then the next day it was gone. Nothing. It was like a bubble burst, and it was a huge story, and then it was like, 
yeah. uh, I don't know, is like a you know like a thunderclap in a in a room full of uh, you know that sound absorbing foam or something. There's just right. no reverberation. Yeah. It none. That's nothing. Good, good, good analogy. Yeah. I mean, that's so dangerous. I can't tell you that you know in an airspace, especially in a, a yeah a, an airport like that. Yeah, the danger of that being there is a real big problem. That's a real, I mean, that's a huge safety issue. What do you think, and this is something that that I was thinking about watching the film, why a rural school outside of Harare, in the middle of nowhere, a bunch of kids, like if the purpose was to send this message that a lot of these children felt that there was a message being conveyed to them, about the dangers of technology and you know the the trajectory of civilization is going in a in a self-destructive place why not land outside MIT or the Pentagon or Caltech or you know what i mean like why that does not seem like a good place to send a message uh yeah i understand it's a lot of technology <laughs> to, <laughs> to ask to children. Um, well, I think if you look at all the other reports of uh, other people around the world, and there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, uh, who've had contact with these things, that's it's not abnormal. And whether that is purposeful or not on this other creature's part, that's I don't know what else to call them. Um, that's up. For, I, I don't know, but it's not uncommon that people that have contact with them get this, these images or about what we're doing to our own environment. Uh, that's for real. So Ariel was not unique in that. Mm. Uh, Ari- what was unique about Ariel was there were so many and they happened to be children, um, that had that experience in a pretty open way daylight, which is very unusual also. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I've talked to, um, a few people who are in the military side, Pentagon side, who have said, you know, right around Ariel, there's, you know, these uranium mines. So I went back and looked, uh, and I'll give those people the credit. Uh, I went back and looked for those mines and I found them, mm. two of them, one sat, one just south of, uh, the school and the one about, probably an hour, hour and a half north. That's much larger. But, you know, there's a lot of uranium mining that goes on in South Africa, Zimbabwe. Um, yeah. A lot of interesting businesses over there. Diamonds are huge <laughs> also. Um, but, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of gave up, like, I don't know what their purpose for doing this was. Uh have no idea. Assuming um, but it, there is a problem. All we can look is, is is the effect. Right. No, I right. can't. I don't know what these things are about or what their intentions are. And that's why I think it's so important that we find out as soon as possible. That's what concerns me. Like, what's their end game with us? You know, what's their end game? I had a, a teacher in college um, who I think he was an astrophysicist and the last day of the class, he, he presented his 
fears around, um, was it the Viking or the Voyager? I forget the, the spacecraft yeah. that they, even the solar system. Yeah. Yeah. And it had a plaque with like our location in the solar system. <laughs> Maybe not a good idea, but we did that with radio waves way long ago. Yeah. We've announced was, our presence. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I don't think that's a good idea necessarily. I think <laughs> a lot of species would say, yeah, no, we shouldn't do that because we, you know, we don't know what's out there at all. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I felt like when he, when he presented that, I felt like, ah, come on, dude. Like if they want, he had this whole thing, they were going to come and enslave us. And blah, 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 blah. and my feeling was like, we are our, nobody's enslaved us except ourselves. Right. Like, if they're so advanced that they can get here, they're going to do whatever the fuck they want with us. That's true. So forget about fighting them. That's a Hollywood fantasy. Right. And also, if they've survived. Ridiculous. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I have to think, you know, by definition, an advanced society is going to be smarter and cooler than us. And so, you know, they're going to save us from ourselves, if anything. I, I, I have a more benevolent bias toward extraterrestrials i think well i feel that same way like if they likely we're not the only creatures they've run into if they can travel uh and they've probably just theoretically speaking uh have seen uh processes like this with other species where they're, they're at the boundary of getting leaving their planet into right. their solar system right these people who knows they may dominate galaxies, you know, and travel between galaxies. And they've seen probably, who knows how many planets they've been to. Um, and, you know, seemingly like what it seems like when I look at the whole field and all the research that I've done in the, on all the incidents that I could look at. Um, I mean, there definitely seems to be a measure of study, you know, study, uh, subtle, Im- subtle movements in toward us, but not overwhelming. I mean, it's actually really smart because I do wildlife, right? So when I'm out in the field photographing, I have to build trust with that animal mm. or that animal is going to take off. Right. So you start off at a distance. You, I always wear the same clothes, same hat. So it knows when I, who I am. And particularly with animals that are far away from humanity, they don't see humans very often. But it's a process of building trust. And I'm, you know, trying not to be the technological giant, which I am in their eyes. They don't understand a lot of the things that I have, which are magical to them, you know, in a, in a sense, things I can do with light, fire, lenses, you know, all these strange things that they don't normally see. But it takes a process of, of time and sometimes a lot of time, months, months to get an animal to trust you wildcat or a bobcat or whatever it was in, you know, Africa was a different deal, bigger stuff <laughs> that could eat you very easily. But uh, yeah. So I kind of see that perspective of how us, another species may be looking at us and being a little delicate, like, you know, we don't want to shock them because it, our society will likely fall apart if it, if we do. So they keep an eye on our technology they're trying to evolve us to understand, yeah, we're not the only ones here. Um, that's kind of the way I see it. Uh, and, and, of course, the military is running into them more often than 
anyone else because that's our technological edge. Militaries all of all over the world are watched yeah. by these. Things. Yeah. Do you do you think uh, you you talked about like how many planets they'd been to and so on? So do you see them as extraterrestrials or? Oh, yeah. po- so you don't see them as possible time travelers from oh. our future. I think from uh, they can manipulate time. Uh, seems like. Uh, they seem to be able to manipulate gravity, which once you can do that, you can manipulate time. I have no idea, like, you know, really how this is all possible, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're a 3d real thing. They're not, uh, Hmm. I don't think they're, if they are, I'm open to the idea they're time travelers, but I think, you know, when we, when we talk about, oh, they're from another dimension or they're time travelers, it's like, yeah, no. Let's not even go there. The fact is they're here, physical form, and what are we going to do about that? We'll figure out the other stuff later. But the fact that they're, they've been visiting our planet for an awfully long time, um, should be concerning to us. Not that they're evil or anything like that, but it should be a concern where we apply science to it and apply universities to it to figure out what's going on. You know, all we need more answers and hmm. it's not paying attention to, in my opinion, this is a big, it is the biggest story. It, in my opinion, I can't even believe it's the, the times we're in actually. It's, it's a very similar yeah. to the Galileo uh, Copernicus moments. Uh, well, <laughs> it happened over years. Yeah. Um, Catholic Church didn't apologize to uh, Galileo until 1992. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking of this story. You probably heard the story, and I don't know if it's true, and I don't know how it could even be proven one way or the other, but the story is that the the Mexican native, the people in, in Mexico, when Cortez and the ships first came up, that the native people couldn't see the ships because they had never seen anything like that. So, I mean, I wonder to what extent, you said there were some adults who did see this, but I wonder if part of the the appeal of the story is that because kids are so open-minded that they're seeing something new every day that they'd never seen before, that they're quicker to recognize something like this that's totally out of the ordinary. That's that's true. Uh, and, you know, I found it in the native cultures over there, the indigenous, the um, the Khoisan Bushmen. Mm. Yeah. Some, I mean, they when uh, and other chiefs, other villages from the Shona, when they want to find something out like they send their kids because mm. the kids can see more. This is like I mean, you can interview people over in Africa or other indigenous cultures, and they'll tell, probably tell you the same thing. Right. Uh, and that is because they don't have, you know, I just remember being a kid too. Like, you know, I was just curious and like, you know, anything's possible, you know, right. and I'm going to look at it, you know? Um, and uh, it's, it just fascinated me like that, that different uh Villages or, or uh, indigenous cultures use that all the time. Yeah, right. So yeah. I think you're right about that. 
I remember reading a thing about uh, Native American um, during the sort of um, colonial period when they were fighting with the, the whites, they would go up in a tree because they said white people never look up when they walk through the, the forest, they never look up. And they said, but, but don't do that if there are kids with them because the kids look up. Interesting. <laughs> so watch out for the kids. They'll get you in trouble. What do you think the practical implications of this are? Um, you know, for you personally, I guess there, there are a whole bunch of practical implications, but like, for humanity in general, for it, what about for other species? For what are the implications for wild animals? Right? Are there is is there any sort of aware like when something like this appears? How do wild animals respond to it? I mean, <laughs> they get real quiet. Do they? <laughs> oh yeah. So they sense it real quiet. Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm sorry. I actually know that from personal experience, <laughs> but I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, they get really quiet. And then after these things leave, they get really loud. Um, that's interesting to me. Mm. Um, wildlife, you know, it's, it's my, my thinking about our planet is we think, you know, the aliens are only about us, right? Or another species from another world is just looking at us. Oh, I don't think so. Like, I think that we're, you know, there's millions of species on this planet. And yeah. I doubt that they think we're, you know, the most important or, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I would imagine wildlife has seen these things. You know, they probably studied our wildlife. I would imagine so. Um yeah, they probably see us as some sort of an infection on the planet, right? I mean, I would imagine they'd want to understand octopus intelligence and dolphin intelligence and chimpanzee and, you know, I mean, there's so many different types of intelligence if that's what they're interested yeah. in. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's egotism to think they're here to check us out in particular. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think the reason probably Oh, what's that thing? Sorry. <laughs> it's just a little electronic stuff going on. Um so yeah. I think um I don't know. Really don't know. You know what uh they're their scope is, um, but I would imagine what triggered it triggered a, a much more, uh, intense look at humanity was nuclear. Mm. Uh, and the fact that we're at the edge of our cage, so to speak, and right. out into the universe. And we may be going out into somebody else's neighborhood. You know about the Fermi paradox? Long, huh? You heard yes. of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're at the edge of that too. We're, yeah. we're, you know, so maybe that explains the timing as well. There, there's an urgency like, Hey, you know, send the message to these guys before they really, you know, blow it all up. Have you heard of, uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson? He, he taught at, uh, he was he taught at the University of Virginia Medical School. He reminds John Mack's story reminds me of him a lot because he was, um, 
He just died a few years ago. He's a very respected psychiatrist, taught at the medical school, um, conventional school, obviously. But he was very interested in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And he sort of running parallel with his work at the medical school, he did research on reincarnation. And he found hundreds of cases of reincarnation where kids would talk about their previous life in great detail. And then he and his researchers would find the village that the kid had talked about because it had a river going next to the brick factory and so on and so on. And they would find the family of the person who had died and mm-hmm. they would confirm that, yeah, this kid and the kid would like, they'd bring the kid and the kid's like, Hey, Julia, what, how have you been? Is your knee still hurting you? And yeah. it, like this crazy stuff is just similar in, in that sense of like someone who had the courage to risk his reputation and his career to do this research. Uh, I think that's such a wonderful thing. You know, it's really unusual and, and interesting. Do you think? Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Do you think there's anything like I I was struck by one? I don't know if it was one of the kids or several of them who said that the figure sort of moves side to side. Um, and I was thinking that's Africa, and and maybe the figures dancing. There's some sort of awareness no. of local customs. No, I don't, I don't think so. No, it moves strangely. It glided. Um, no, side to side. I don't, I don't remember anybody saying that to me. Oh, okay. Fortunately, everything's in my brain still. It's on the computer, <laughs> but it's also in my head. I can't wait to let it go. <laughs> do you think you'll do but that? When are you uh, going to do it? When you're moving on to the next project or at what I think point so. do you let it go? I think when, you know, I really would love the, the people that were part of this story to speak rather than me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I, I tried to, I just got too much on my plate. Um, but if there are any of those people that want to speak about it, please call me. I'll, I'll make it happen. It's just, I was trying to organize all that and it just, I got too much on my plate. So, but I really would like the, the people themselves to speak. Um, if they're willing, um, I think that's the step I'm kind of, waiting for so i just don't want their story to go away right uh it's too important there are many others like it uh broadhaven uh the incident in uh, australia west westall and there's many others uh where it's happened at primary schools um so yeah someone is going to have to cover that i don't think i'm going to do that is uh all the other Schools in South America, Russia, the United States, where it, similar incidents like this have happened, which is astounding <laughs> alone. alone. Yeah. I mean, I have the newspaper clippings for at least seven or eight different incidents that have happened. In- and how many have not been reported, right? I mean, for everyone that's reported, there right. must be dozens that aren't reported. There's a friend of mine who, uh, they were at a football game at a high school, uh, when they saw this thing come over and hover and sit there and they all watched it and never got reported. Right. A lot of people saw it. And maybe, maybe after the fact hmm. that might be a, a reality, but uh, 
yeah, these things, people don't want to report it because of the stigma that has been there for so long. But hopefully, and thank God, that is changing. Well, I think yeah. that's that's one of the greatest values of, of your film, that when people see it, I think it will have a destigmatizing effect. And, uh, you know, anything that we can do to reduce the amount of unnecessary shame and suffering in the world, I think is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, yeah. So thank Keeping you. Keeping things quiet and in the closet are not helpful. No. Like tr- truth is, I mean, it, the further you get away from the truth or the further you hide the truth, the worse things get, you yeah. know, we should just deal with what we have to deal with because we got enough on our plate as a, as a species right now. <laughs> we need to just be real honest and open about it because we need to solve them and we have to cooperate with each other to do so, you know? Yeah. I really, what? I appreciate the fact that you spent 15 years researching this and you made this fantastic film, but still you're very willing to say, I don't know. Oh yeah. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a monkey man (laughs) in comparison to what, uh, people are running into. I mean, that's just the truth. Um, I may be smart for my own species. Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> right. But in comparison yeah. to something that's been around the universe for a while, I'm a, I'm a, I'm basically a wild animal. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all, we're all, tough, we have to, you know, there's a humility that comes that a lot of people have gone through when they've encountered these things, these creatures from that have been around forever. And God only knows what their evolutionary process is and all the other th- things that happen. But I mean, you've, technologically you are completely in the dark. Yeah. I mean, everything we have, including our best stuff, our antiques. Yeah. Compared to that stuff. I mean, that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Whether you believe it or not, but that's the thing we kind of all have to like, eventually, I mean, it's happening to individuals all the time where you just get humbled and you realize like, Oh boy. I'm not that smart and I'm not that evolved. Yep. And that, that's okay. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. What's wrong There's, with that? I, I want to learn. I, I, I just, learn. I, I try to enjoy the, the primitive aspects of my life as much as possible. That's mm-hmm. how I deal with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I fine. Like <laughs> what? Yeah. Build I'm a campfire. Wild animal. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, there's, there's a lot of pleasure in that humility. I agree. Listen, thank you for your time, man. I know you're doing a lot of interviews and uh, you're answering the same questions over and over. I appreciate it. I appreciate your uh, questions and how you, uh, it was a nice conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Aerial phenomenon, Randall Nickerson. Check it out. If you dare, it's not a scary film. It's it's not about you know oh my God they're they're coming to probe us and enslave us it's it's just a film about an extraordinary event <clears throat> that happened to be seen by many many witnesses and and how that event has affected them highly recommended I'm going to play you out with the song that I 
begin every episode of this podcast with. I, I, I have a little excerpt of it, a little cut. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. Uh, the band is Basin and Range. You can find them at basinandrange.bandcamp.com. It's an amazing tune. Uh, I mean, you've heard the, the little snippet I play many times by now, probably, but it's worth it to listen to the whole thing occasionally. It's, uh, it's really good. I, it's on a CD, a mixed CD that I have in the car and I played it the other day and it was like, fuck, this song really takes you on a trip. It's a journey and it's, it's beautiful because they just introduce this theme that I play at the beginning of the podcast. And then it goes through all these different iterations of the same theme and then comes back to where it started and kind of seem like maybe that's the, that's the way life is, right? You sort of, you are who you are when you're born. And then your life is a series of reflections of that essence of manifestations of that essence. And then, if you're lucky enough to get old, you sort of get reduced right back down to that essence again before the bubble pops. Bright side of the sun, basin and range. Thanks for coming along on this journey with me. Mm-hmm. 